This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be a female Turkish visual anthropologist? In this episode, Elif shares with us what it was like growing up in both Portugal and Turkey and how these experiences shaped her perspectives. Her story revolves around the fluidity of inclusion and exclusion, as well as the question of who gets to decide who is in or out of a group in a given space and time. I'm Fumi, this is Hashigar Racism, and this is the story of Elif. I was born in Istanbul, Turkey in 1987 to a family from central Turkey, but who's been living in Istanbul for work reasons. And generationally, I have a grandmother from Bosnia-Herzegovina. She's from Mostar. She identified as Bosniak. But then it was just before the World War I started, they migrated to Turkey, which was the Ottoman Empire at that time. It was vast and there was a lot of different ethnicities living together, like Armenians, Kurds, Greeks, all sorts of kind of people, which then with the establishment of the nation state in 1923, somehow a lot of these people found themselves as minorities. And I think that's where the story really starts of freedoms and oppression and this kind of nationalistic point of view of Who are the people living in Turkey that should they all be called Turks? And most of my uh, background is also Turkish from Anatolia. So they identified as Turks. And um, well, yeah, they had the privilege to choose to select the people who would be in the government. But now again, the situation is kind of changing more in the side of how religious or how conservative you are. And because the current government identifies as Muslims and they have a conservative stance to Islam. So a lot of the freedoms that like very basically like drinking alcohol, something that is very normal for a lot of the backgrounds, you can become criminalized now for drinking in the streets and things like that, which has been changing since 2015. There are lots of stories like that about freedoms, about your position and status in the society regarding to how you identify as a Turk or as a Muslim Turk and things like that, yeah. At a very young age, Elif's father's job took their family to Spain and Portugal. Elif says she has only great memories of Spain because she was too young to understand what was happening around her. However, when she moved to Lisbon, Portugal around the age of six, She recalls the feeling of being left out. In Portugal, when I started primary school, like first grade, I felt very lonely. I felt very uh, isolated. I was attending a British school in Lisbon. So the major language was English. The education language was English. But then at the uh, breaks, of course, because we're in Portugal and most of the kids were Portuguese, Everybody was speaking Portuguese, and it's a different language than Spanish. But knowing Spanish, it's easier to learn Portuguese. So it took me not so long to become fluent in Portuguese. But within that period, from the first grade to the second grade, I felt lonely. I didn't really have friends. 
and I was really uh, I really wanted to have friends because I think as a kid I think that's like the most I mean you need to have friends so people were polite and nice but you know the strange thing was like I didn't have playmates at the breaks so I had to wait alone and like thinking about this during that time I don't think I knew what that was I don't know like how I I can recall the feeling now that I'm reflecting on it but I think that's something that you're not really aware that is happening to you that you're being isolated left behind and you just don't know why why is that happening to you and then what happened is at second grade a Japanese girl came in, uh, Ayako, and her brother, Atushi. And I also had a, fa- uh, a, a brother, Alijan. So interestingly, my brother was playing together with his brother, and we were always together. But the interesting about Ayako was she didn't seem like she needed to have friends. She was really fine with being in her own world. And we were talking about the Japanese kids' movies, the animes, you know, the Sailor Moon and all these beautiful kids' soap operas. And that was our connection because I also loved them. And I, like, after school, I just ran to the house to watch these series, which I didn't know they were coming from Japan, actually. I didn't know about that these were made in Japan because we were watching them in Portuguese so it's very strange, isn't it? I mean, you have a lot of cultural differences and mixes that plays a role in your life. For instance, the idea of Sailor Moon was magical for me because she was this regular schoolgirl who would transform into a superhero and save the world from darkness. And guess what? I mean, all that experience of being isolated, not being able to find playmates, which then changed. It then changed. I really convinced the Portuguese kids that, you know, I'm a good playmate. They should be playing with me too. So I started to have friends. But in the very beginning, right, like it was very tough because they could see the difference. They, I mean, what they saw as a difference was they were told that I am not Portuguese. I'm from Turkey, but they didn't know what that meant. So lots of little things like that. And maybe even with religion, for instance, because it was a Catholic school, but by no means we had anything religious in the classes. The only religious thing was probably praying before the food, before receiving the the lunch. And I was praying with them. I liked that. I mean, it was fine for me saying, you know, Jesus, thank you for everything. Uh, Praise, you know, the Lord and Mother Mary. And I was like, that's cool. But then we had art classes and During the art classes, I think during Christmas, they wanted us to paint about Santa Claus and, uh, you know, Jesus and so on. And I would do that. I would paint them. But then I would also paint Muhammad, who's like uh, flying on a flying carpet. (laughs) And then my parents asked me, so what is this? Like, actually, the teachers asked me, so who are they? And I said, well, look, you know, I love Jesus. I think he's a great guy. But then I informed the teachers that uh, Muhammad is also important for us because, you know, he he looks into the Muslim world and Jesus looks to the Christian world. So I was like already made aware of the territorial dimensions of who's looking at which people. Like there's not one Jesus for everyone somehow. 
which then I was a bit heartbroken because for me, Jesus is really this wonderful being, you know, who's all about tolerance and love and healing and then all sorts of things. And then my Japanese friend, he, she was just like, yeah, it's like completely in her own world. She, she didn't really care about it. And, you know, her mother prepared these beautiful lunch boxes. You know, it's very famous with the Japanese lunch boxes. And she was so tiny and her appetite was so little, she wouldn't be able to finish. And she was always like, would you like to eat some? And I would finish the entire thing. So I would have my lunch, plus I would have the lunchbox of my Japanese friend. I was quite a child with appetite. But I think Ayako, you know, she she's the one who I really, I think because of her, I made it to the second grade. And then after the second grade, like the solidarity between us, the secret hidden solidarity by sharing each other's food. I also shared a lot of my food, which my mother didn't prepare me, huge lunch boxes. She said, because anyhow, you're having lunch, you have a little snack, and then I take you home. But apparently for Ayako, it was not easy to eat the food that they were giving in the book because she had a very different cuisine. So she had sushis, she had nigiri, like she had a very different variety every day. And that was fine. But then, you know, at the neighborhood where we were staying, I had friends, of course. Only at the school it was dif difficult. And then I realized, now that I'm reflecting, of course, streets are different than institutions, right? So streets and the outer world is much different than the institutional world, where at schools it can be tough because there's still some sort of places where you see majority being more prominent. And then you see minority being uh, silenced. Um, and that starts already from such an early age group. Unbelievable. So one wonders, why does that happen? Of course, I had like Portuguese kids who were very interested in me, who wanted to know about me, but they wouldn't feel comfortable when there was these huge gatherings of people. So they weren't feeling comfortable talking to me or playing to me when there's just too many Portuguese kids around. But like when we are one-to-one -one basis, when we see each other at the stairs, when we see each other at the corner of a place, they were interested. They wanted to get to know about me and so on. But like when we were in the crowd, they were all like, you know, we are Portuguese and you are not kind of thing. Elif shares one memory that she remembers to this day. When I was invited to a birthday party for the first time, I was so happy. Like I was like, wow, I've been invited to a birthday party. I don't forget the name of the girl. Her name was Gabriela, and actually she was Bulgarian. But I think she had a Portuguese father or a mother, so she was mixed. So we went there to the house with my brother, but then this happened. The mother said, we take the girl, but we can't take the boy because he's too young, and uh, I cannot take care of him, she said. And my brother cried for hours being rejected to the birthday party. And my mother then told me, then, Elif, you come back with us because otherwise your brother will be so upset that you're gone and he's not accepted to the party. And I was like, but it's so important for me, like, to be in this community of kids. So despite all the cries and the tears of my brother, I just went into the party without him. And I think that stayed with me too as a feeling, like this feeling of betrayal betraying your own little brother, it really hurts. You don't realize it hurts. 
that time. But like after many years, I realized, why did I do that? Like, why didn't I protect my brother and like stood by him and things like that? But I remember I had a great time also in the birthday party. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Elif didn't stay in Portugal for long as she went back to Istanbul with her family where a different life would await her. Another chapter started, you know, reintegrating to your own society because now you're different also there. That was a bit tough again with the language. Uh, my Turkish wasn't so good. Grammatically, I'm still not good. I feel uh, I'm always confusing stuff and not going by the rule. But then, of course, I was accepted immediately in Turkey. Like there's never been, uh, like it was just natural. They were like, welcome home, you know. So that's, I think that was good in some ways, that I had the chance to build a lot more esteem. I could tell the difference. In Portugal, you're always, uh, no matter how much you look like them or how much you behave or you talk, sound like them, they always somehow know or make you feel you're different. Or maybe we needed a bit more years. Maybe by the time I would get 2025, maybe that would have completely evaporated. So that's like when you are completely assimilated somehow. But that didn't happen. The moment I was accepted into the Portuguese kids' school, we went back to Turkey. So that chapter wasn't closed. And uh, then started already in Turkey, which was quite a relief. I was very relieved. It was very natural, very home. I felt very safe, very secure. Because, again, I was now with the privileged kids in uh, Turkey. I wasn't in a village school in a Kurdish town, you know. I was uh, where the, the white Turks were. And then you understand also a little bit why things become the way they are. I think the fear of becoming the oppressed, people become the oppressors, so there's no one to oppress them or something. I don't know. But I don't think that's needed anymore. I think we as humanity have had this experience now, you know, like you could be from anywhere else from the world, but you should be accepted just because you're a human being. It shouldn't matter that you are from here, you bring this culture or you bring that, or maybe this is very different in Canada, which the whole country is based on receiving all these international migrants. But not in the U.S. We know that in the U.S. it's quite tough. It seems international, but it's not. We have enough evidence that that's not the case by now. But then, yeah, in Turkey, being a Turk is great. But not anymore also because, you know, like the political stuff. Elif reflects how her physical and emotional experiences shaped her perspectives over time. I would say everything that has an impact on your feelings is important. Emotions are very important. Emotions to me are the core of life. Of course, I learned to be a bit more rational, a bit more pragmatic here later on, but maybe it also depends on the characters. I mean, I'm a very emotional person. My feelings are like fire, you know, I, I feel stuff. I feel tension. I'm very sensitive to feelings and the mood and the energy of places and of people. So I, I judge my experience by the way I was made feeling things. Like with Ayako, I always had very positive feelings. 
I felt very safe, very secure, very pleased. There was no aggression. But there were moments with some kids, like even there was a bully. And he was really like doing aggressive things. Like once I was running down the hill and he put his arm like this and I hit his arm because I was running so fast and I went all the way back and I couldn't breathe. And of course, I went to the teacher and, and crying. I said, he did this for no reason. Like he just took my breath away while I was running. It's, it's, I said, he attacked me. And then they talked to him. They talked to his parents. My parents talked to his parents. You know, it was a big thing. And I mean, then the kid stopped. But still, like, I remember that. Like, why did he feel the need to attack me? For no reason. Like, we didn't even know each other, you know. And I mean, some kids go through worse experiences of bullying. Mine were very mild, a very mild period of exclusion, a very mild period of, but it stayed with me. Unbelievable. Like, I wasn't hit or kicked or, you know, I wasn't, but like, it stays with you. Or maybe it doesn't, I mean, it stayed with me. I transformed them into understanding and, you know, to all of that and being mindful of not doing the same things to other people, making sure everybody's included. But still, I feel so much when I hear even worse stories of people being bullied for being different or for not being accepted. And sometimes it doesn't need to be a foreigner who experiences this. Like you could easily do this to someone from your own kind or background. But then, you know, what was very interesting is also at this yard of the school, there were these diagonal playgrounds where like made from steel and we would climb them and we would uh, turn upside down like a bat. I think that was quite trendy during those years or maybe it was just the school or in Portugal. So I became an expert of that. So I was always, whenever my mother came to the school to pick me up, she always found me upside down, like slinging. And I think that's also metaphoric because that experience taught me to see life from a different angle because I was always viewing people upside down, you know. It's interesting. It's interesting. And why I like that, because I was one of the kids who was doing that the whole time. Like whoever came to the school, they could always find me in that same position. It was just like upside down, like a bet. And I think that gave me the perspective of seeing things differently, like my perspective shifted. So I also feel uh, lucky about that. Like, it's like, I'm glad I experienced this. I'm glad because it made me more empathetic, empathetic to people because I was given those feelings. And then how do we transcend that? You need to shift the perspective. You need to see it from a different way. All these metaphoric things that I, I would make sense only years after. And in Turkey, my perspective didn't need to be upside down. It was easy, you know. I could just follow the doctrine. So it was quite a doctrinating country. We were made proud to be a Turk. So just before every classroom, we would have this long poem, Nemutlu Türküm Diene, meaning how happy is to say I'm a Turkish, you know. So from that experience to how happy I am to be Turkish, it was quite healing. But then... You do that for till high school and then it's just like, yeah, but come on, you know, the world is not just with Turks and Turkish. We also need to know what's going around us, right? Or be inclusive of other people who are joining us. And uh, that wasn't happening. 
So then I shifted the role from the excluded to the excluder without knowing, without knowing, without realizing. Because it's also not my choice, you know, my parents, they just throw me into different societies and then <laughs> as a kid, I mean, what do you do? But then at the end of high school, I was starting to get irritated with like the way classes were being held. It was always about men, like in history classes, there all these emperors and, you know, how men conquered this and that, this empire, this sultan. And one day I asked, where's the woman? I was starting to get angry. And that's discrimination big time, you know, like before race or before cultural differences. I am a woman. So again, there is this other layer. And I, I didn't feel represented in the educational system. And then they started calling me a feminist. And I didn't know the meaning of feminism at the age of 16. And I thought it was like a insult. I thought it was an insult. I was like, I'm not a feminist. <laughs> As if it's an insult, you know, you also don't want to be anything that they call you. But then university really helped me to break free. But till then, I think you're just being thrown into different situations and you're trying to survive. Elif eventually went on to pursue her PhD on visual anthropology in Switzerland. This journey proved rocky with various challenges thrown at her. Her experiences in Portugal would be her guiding star. It was a challenging period because I did the study in 2015 and 16 with a fieldwork in Turkey, in Istanbul, with unaccompanied asylum-seeking youth. And that's where you really see people being discriminated on a daily basis just because where they come from and uh, lacking status. And on the top, on the plus, they're under state care protection, but you see how actually they're not being protected. You see how easily they get criminalized just by behaving traumatic. And how can they not be traumatized at that young age, at the age of 13, 14, running away from ISIS, running away from imprisonment, detentions, being locked in camps or risking your life in the Mediterranean Sea. So after seeing that struggle, after seeing the incredible inhumanities these people faced at such a young age, I felt obliged to write a book that would mean something or that would make a difference. And I had a supervisor who was very, very supportive, who was very much on my side of seeing things from a humanistic way, and that we produce knowledge that is not harmful in this case. But then there's the other side of the story, which Swiss Academia brings is another supervisor who was into excellence, and that for her, scientific excellence came with being objective and uh, nearly being very cruel to seeing things from a very apathetic lens. And when I wanted to write about things from the perspectives of the kids, and therefore also putting a positioning, a clear subjective positioning, that was not academic. That was activism for them. And because I didn't fit into that expectation, there were big wars. <laughs> there was like big war. Like who publishes what, who does this? I made a stance by just withdrawing, working with them. So I'm always against authority. I have nothing to fear because I don't see this only as a profession. I'm not a professional anthropologist. I am um, 
yeah, I just can't bear injustices. And I think I have enough brain to understand who is what and who's doing what and who are the real perpetrators and who are the victims. But also being careful about writing people who've been victimized, not to victimize them more while you're writing more about the victims. That's very important. So that awareness wouldn't come again without knowledge. And knowledge comes by, of course, a lot of life experience, but also learning those languages that has been produced before you. As a newcomer, you have to know these languages, these ways of thinking, which then in scientific terms, they call them epistemologies, ontologies, which to me, these are all doctrines, you know. There's no difference to me if you say I'm looking from this epistemological perspective or that. Why would Foucault be the only person I should be following or writing about? Why can't I choose someone else that I admire? For instance, I chose Gayatri Spivak, I chose Bell Hooks, I chose Homi Baba for bringing in the third space theory, which is the theory I applied into my study uh, because uh, the young kids were really informing the theory of third space about translating and about talking about how there are parallel worlds and they constantly find themselves being accepted and excluded on a daily basis. So from uh, hospitality to sovereignty. And um, when you read about third space, you really find a lot about the migrants' experience. And he also talks about a displaced angle of vision, which it also really related with me, with me looking always from upside down as a migrant in Portugal, trying to look things from a different angle, a displaced angle of vision. So I found myself, but I really lost myself before I found myself. And that's the PhD process, feeling isolated and very lost to finding my own voice. And then being brave and courageous to not just do whatever people tell you and just do what you think is right that you should be doing. Because I feel my responsibility before being a scientist is being a human being, making sure that I'm a human first. And I don't betray my younger brothers like I did with my own brother. Just to be included, just to be accepted to a society, you don't get kids crying. So that's what I kept with me these two childhood experiences, you know, remembering how awful it is to be excluded when all you want to do is to play. And playing is what also the young migrants brought a lot, that they wanted to play, but they just couldn't. I mean, there was no time to play. I mean, it's just so deep in that sense, you know. And I felt like I was the right person to do this study. I was really the right person. I would say it's even like cosmic, like destiny kind of thing. I was really the right Turkish visual anthropologist to look and make sure like these voices are being heard and uh, not to give a fuck about authorities telling me if this is scientific or not. It's like bullshit. What are you talking about? People are dying. You know, that simple. People are being detained. I'm not going to write any theoretical bullshit about the state or the crisis. I'm not going to connotate the children with the crisis. They have nothing to do with the crisis. They are just looking for freedom, like all of us. Against her background and experiences, Elif has the following to say about what she thinks it takes to be anti-racist. What does it take to be anti-racist is to remember all your own life experiences. You know, reflect on the moments when you felt excluded, differentiated. This is what it takes. You should be able to think that every individual in front of you 
regardless of their background, they have experienced that as well. Maybe to even more, like higher magnitudes of those feelings. And to respect emotions, to respect emotions, to respect feelings. That is what it takes. We should have that empathy, regardless to where they're coming from. I mean, just because they're speaking a different language or they look much different doesn't mean they're not relatable. Actually, they are. It's, um, I wonder what happens to all those kids who weren't playing with me. Who did they become? I'm hoping they became better people. But like, I never in my life excluded people who wanted to play with me. I always accepted their invitation. Yeah, that starts there. I think it takes <laughs> to be able to play together. And playing together in our adult world connotates to sharing uh, decision-making. That's what play to me now means. Because there are players, they play, they do stuff, they build projects. And if they just want to play alone, then they play alone. They don't include you, but they can't pretend like they're including you, but then getting funds out of you. Because this is, has also become a field where people generate income. It became an industry, almost, this diversity, inclusivity, you know, sections in these companies just became another thing like, you know, our sustainability framework. But how sustainable are you really? Like you're just using these words, we're being inclusive, diverse, but you're not giving them the right to decide. You're just using them as faces, as, you know, like a catalogue. Yeah, we have a black guy, we have, but are they really in positions of power or are they really managing? That's important. Because racial equity to me comes with uh, sharing resources as well as the decision-making powers of how you are going to share these resources. You can find more information about Elif's work as well as other articles, books and videos Elif recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website www.ourcontacts.org You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you in two weeks. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morris, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Elif for her time and energy in going down memory lane and reliving for us some of her painful memories and sharing with us important reflections on this issue.